I'm Demelo Roberts, stage and studio on ArtsWatch. She's an actor, writer, activist, and a Pulitzer Prize-nominated playwright. Yes, I'm talking about Christina Wong, who's bringing her solo show, Christina Wong, Sweatshop Overlord, to Portland. It's a co-production of Portland Center Stage and Boom Arts, and it's opening November 5th to previews and November 11th to performances through December 18th. She's going to be in town. Christina Wong, Sweatshop Overlord, is a project born out of the pandemic when she had more than 800 volunteers known as the Auntie Sewing Squad to sew masks and distribute them free to underserved populations, including indigenous communities, asylum seekers, houseless individuals, incarcerated people, and Black Lives Matter protesters. The first call to battle! My friend, Serenia Swissercool, first Asian-American female firefighter in New York City, says her fire unit is down to the last N95s on the rig, and they need backup. 22 fabric masks coming up. And with me to talk about this activist project, which bloomed into a book and a solo show, is Christina Wong. <laughs> It's amazing. Christina, welcome to Stage and Studio on Artswatch. Good to see you. It's so great to see you again. I don't know if you remember. I want to show you this. No, of course I remember you. I totally remember you. Our listeners can't uh, see this, but oh, I have a red, red hashtag in my hand. Oh, and it yes. is something you sewed and uh, you were selling. And mm -hmm. on it, it has your photo on it and it says what does it say oh the tag says tag. christina wong made this instead of smoking crack i sure did which is a very good endeavor <laughs> and i still have it <laughs> so i wanted to show you so that was back in oh gosh i think 2016 16. i think so when you were in portland 16 last? or 17 yeah yeah yep 2017, and you were doing the Wong Street Journal here in Portland with Boom Arts. Yeah. And that show was about your time as a volunteer in northern Uganda, and you became this sort of inadvertent hip-hop star there. And it was very funny. Yeah, I made a, a hit rap album by accident on the streets. and I. But, I, you know, so much of that, that experience of learning to navigate all right. Like as much as, you know, I don't want to get a privilege Olympics, but you know, we, we, sometimes we think we're, we don't have privilege. And then you, for me, I went to Uganda, I went, Oh, Oh, I got a lot of privilege, <laughs> at least in this situation. And, um, and in thinking about the way the micro lane, the micro loan organization I worked with was set up. Um, it was focused around giving microloans just to women. And sometimes men, Ugandan men would, would be kind of like, well, why is it just women? And the logic was because they feed their family first. They're the last to eat. They manage their households. And a lot of learning about thinking about how to get it to the most vulnerable to empower an entire family and an entire community is how we began to think about it did not sewing the masks did not start with us. You know, it was just sort of like people screaming in all directions, needing masks. And then it became very clear, we need to find the most vulnerable commu of communities to make these masks for, if we're really going to try to make a dent in this pandemic. But I, I, I sort of jumped halfway in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a wonderful show. 
I also actually, I wanted to say, I also saw during the pandemic, since you mentioned the pandemic, Christina Wong for Public Office, and it was a virtual performance that was hosted by the Consortium of Asian American Theater Artists Alliance, Kata. And also, just as in the previous show, you combined humor with social commentary and satire. I mean, you actually ran for office. I mean, you have this gift to make people laugh and think at the same time. You're using art and activism hand in hand, and you also make people laugh. When was the first time that this impetus for you, this motivation for you to to be an activist as well as make people laugh? When Do you remember the earliest times where that came from? I I never knew that, that, that theater was political because the kind of theater that I did in high school was so not political. <laughs> it was very much like plays written by dead white people, like guys and dolls, like things that just very much affirm gender roles as, 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 as being very specifically old school and affirmed, you know, that white characters are the only characters in the world. And we're just going to pretend Christina's not Asian for the moment that she's playing this character. Right. And it wasn't until I, I got to UCLA and was introduced to this world of um, artists of color who were making their own work which was super transgressive. I was like, what? You don't have to wait for someone to free you with their writing and then cast you. And then <laughs> you become the vehicle in which you you know carry out this message. I also was just sort of introduced to like my own racial and gender identity, right? As being a political thing. Like I think for so long, I had just sort of understood its limits and tried to work around it. Like I understood that when I, it was sort of understood that when I walked into a room, people would not see me or they would not assume that I was in charge or the leader, right? And and this these were just sort of things I had to work with, not through or change. And I think what, like being introduced to a, to a whole canon of work, especially the like, Teatro Campesino work by farm workers to like organize farm workers. I was like, holy crap, like theater can actually do something. It's not just like pay for expensive opera tickets, sit in the dark, watch something, clap and then go home. But but like so much of what is around us right now in our lives is theater. It's just not playing out in theater. So like when you look at politicians and these campaigns and these speeches and the badges that they flashed that they got from the toy store, this is all theater, right? <laughs> these are all these symbolic gestures that are presented to us that we have to navigate or counter or comment on. So I think that's when stuff really shifted is when I learned that the, there was a world where you didn't, you were not necessarily at the mercy of being cast into things in order to work as a performer, that you could actually devise and make your own work. Now, high school, I felt very much felt as when I was internalizing specific ways that I was supposed to live out my identity. Like I caught on very early on that people assumed that I was like not a kind of person that would create trouble because you don't see an Asian woman, you think she's going to make trouble. And I ran with it. Like I, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to say I cheated anybody, but you know, it was like, who me, you know, like I had to be bad. And, but also, you know, I also recognized where, for example, I used to go, my, one of my first jobs was going door to door for the Sierra Club to sign people for membership. This was in high school. And people would open their doors for me because it was like, oh, who's this? this is, they look through the people and they go, who's this Chinese woman? Or this little, who's this teenager? Like this Asian teenager on my doorstep. You know, whereas if I was like a white guy holding a clipboard, they'd be like, oh, that's a canvasser, right? You know, I just 
seem like this harmless person at your door. Um, I mean, those are incidences when it was advantageous, but there are definitely other moments where I felt like I, God, I don't want to get into this, but like. <laughs> well, you don't have to. I, I, it made me think, you know, um, yeah, it's a double-edged sword because it's nice that you can, you can, you know, be, look harmless and you might yeah. be able to get away with some things. For me, I always have resting bitchy face and I've had directors <laughs> tell me, I think you're thinking about something and I don't like it, you know? And I'm, mm. like, I, I'm just thinking like I'm hungry and I want to go home. <laughs> but it looks conniving and evil, <laughs> exactly, right? To them. Exactly. Yeah, there's so. that, that's definitely a thing, right? <laughs> like this assumption that I don't have an, like harmless is a double-edged sword, right? Oh, oh, you know, it's, it's, oh, I'll open the door for her so she can take my money. Or it's also, we're not going to get input from her. She's probably fine if we just do something that, you know, blows past something that's in her interest. Well, they can also take advantage of you and not pay attention to you and not respect you. I mean, that's, that's the other part. Yeah. Not pay, not pay attention, not pay me, not, right. you know, all these kind of things. Assume that I'm probably fine with the, with crappy situations, not take me seriously when I'm, when I'm lodging a complaint or trying to advocate for something. I just feel like, what? What's that? And I mean, I get that a lot even now where if I, there are moments in my career where I have railed against moments of oppressive whiteness or railed against white men who just date Asian women and people like get almost violently upset that somehow dare she, we let, we let her family stay here. And now, I mean, this is the crudest version of, of what they're expressing. And now she dare tell us what to like, what to do. How dare she actually ha- talk? You know, like <laughs> that's, that's sad. Yeah. Yeah. Because you yeah. don't know your place, apparently. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the other part of it too. And I think that's probably more so during the pandemic. Yeah. Because obviously there was a rise of mm-hmm. anti-Asian mm-hmm. violence and hate crimes. Like, how dare you? You know, you brought this to us. And, yeah. you know, there's just so much of that now. And, well, I'm glad that, you know, I, I hope that people take, you know, are taking you seriously. I mean, you're doing very, very well, you know, from perception. <laughs> wise yeah thank you <laughs> you know but, but still <laughs> I think I'm doing really well right now and yeah I hope I hope all the haters are looking and ready to kiss the ring <laughs> wouldn't that be nice yeah wouldn't that be nice well during the pandemic I I kept in touch with you through your newsletter emails that you were sending mm-hmm. out and that's when you yeah. started doing the auntie sewing squad squad yeah. yeah and I saw that you were responding to the pandemic in a way that was practical, but mm-hmm. also artistic because you know how to sew. I don't know how to sew, but you also got together 800 other sewers, you know, to work together. How how did that all start? Never again. <laughs> Next pandemic, you are all on your own. Well, it started because, well, if you, you were holding the hashtag earlier that I made in my last show, I've never sewn anything of purpose. I don't even really sew garments, right? So most of the things I make are decorative thingies. And basically, I was touring Christina Wong for public office about how I ran for public office in um, Koreatown, sort of as, as a response to a moment in our history where it felt like artists and politicians had switched jobs. Somehow politicians were the clowns and uh, somehow artists were the left ones left kind of reclaiming earnestness and truth and social change. 
And I thought, how did this happen? So I thought, okay, I'll run for office. And I had the show that I was going to tour live in person all through 2020 up until the election. And um, it was staged like a big live crazy campaign rally. So the idea is like maybe you'd be attending rallies of other people who are actually running for office and then you would attend my show rally. But I actually did run for office and I won a seat, uh, an unpaid seat on my neighborhood council. And so the show reports on that. The show premiered live February 2020. The entire tour (laughs) was quote unquote postponed, you know, the very next month. And I'm sitting at home unessential, no income, going, oh my God, what am I going to do? And thinking, are we all going to die, right? And I had seen this article that doctors and nurses did not have access to masks and there were actually patterns going around. This is a cloth mask you could sew. And I got really excited that I had one essential skill and I sewed the worst first mask in my life and very naively was like, I can make you a mask if you you know, immunocompromised or don't have access to masks or you're an essential worker, not realizing that all these people who avoid coming to my shows would find me. Oh, suddenly we see your post, Christina, you know, (laughs) suddenly we see you have something to offer us. And I was just inundated with like hundreds of requests, some very serious ones like fire departments, nurse units. And I, it's not like our country was not prepared for this pandemic and we were certainly not prepared for a mask shortage or a home sewing mask movement. And so I, you know, just trying to figure out where the hell to get elastic was the hardest thing. And that's a moment in this show that I capture. People say, if you don't love this country, then get the hell out. Well, guess what? I love this country and this is my chance to protect the family that is the human race. World, if you are immunocompromised or you don't have access to masks or maybe you're an essential worker, I can make you a mask. Now you can reimburse me for shipping, but if you don't have it, don't worry about it. I do this because my health is your health. All health matters. I have a Hello Kitty sewing machine. I got half a cut up bed sheet. I got four yards of elastic. Oh, I am going to protect this country because when your ego, I mean life, has been called upon by God and your Facebook, you take action. So four days in, I was like, oh God, what have, I've overpromised the internet. I've never been in this position as an artist where your life is the difference between life or death for other people. So it's really hard to say no. It certainly seems selfish to be like, I'm sorry, I need to take care of me. Like when, when here there are these nurses that are like going to, they're like walking to their death sentence, going to work with no mask, right? So, you know, this felt like the American, my American duty. I did not go into this going, this is, it actually felt like the most like, generically patriotic thing I could ever imagine doing. It only became very political as we kept going and seeing what communities were still left uncovered. And those were communities that historically have a history of being ignored by the federal government, were already under-resourced, don't have infrastructure and basic access to things like water, healthcare, or things like that. 
So yeah, it started as like, oh my God, I love my fellow American and I can't wait to sew. You know, I, I, I will do whatever it takes to do this, but I had overpromised the internet and I needed help. And so I tried to, but the thing is everybody was scrambling, right? And so I tried to create a Facebook group to, to see, maybe I can gather, you know, I, I was looking at other existing Facebook groups and they were so huge. I was like, I, it, it felt like going into Grand Central Station and trying to wave people down to help you. So I was like, I'll just start my own small group and hope that people have leftover masks. I can cover this list and we can walk away from it in three weeks or less. Never. Nope. Nope, no, because nope, it turned nope. into this huge, almost business for you. Was no, I don't. Well, was not say business because there was no money. <laughs> yeah, there was no money. Uh, nonprofit. It was, it was nonprofit. A, it yeah. was not even a nonprofit. Well, it's it was mutual aid basically, and and it was very specifically not. Uh, some of the aunties were like, why don't we just become a nonprofit? And I'm like, because nonprofits cost money to run. Nonprofits, in theory, run forever. This is supposed to be for something temporary. And um, I don't want to spend my time trying to organize a board and then. Oh, no, I didn't mean yeah. it in that sense. I meant. But it like- was. Yeah, it, it was a whole operation. It was a it was a freaking it was a freaking it was an operation for sure. Yeah, it was an operation. That's the word. A no profit operation that was really set up to be a stopgap. We went on for five hundred and four days. We sewed 350,000 masks. We had relief vehicles of the Navajo Nation. We sent hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical and hygiene supplies to farm workers, indigenous communities, and border communities, right? We, we got to the point that towards the end of this, an actual government agency asked me, asked us for masks. And I just thought, we are so broken if this is the point. If, if we are really here that an actual salaried government worker is asking me, who's reading your email with no no shoes on in her house, <laughs> to help. We are really a broken system. So, so these are sort of the stories we capture of like, when are we going to retire? But also like these incredible communities that we both supported, but also this community we made of each other. We were like, I didn't feel lonely at all in the pandemic because people were coming to my door like five times a day to pick up stuff or drop off stuff. And we had a very social network that very much cared for each other. And some of them I've not, I've never even met in person. That's amazing. And how did that, you said that was 530 days or something. So that's like 504 days. The show, 504, the show will, will cover 554 days of time in 90 minutes. <laughs> Let me tell you, it is not easy trying to condense what the hell happened in that pandemic in 90 minutes, but I did it. <laughs> I did it. So yeah, it's uh, it's crazy. And and I, I, I did not think that this was going to be a show as a top of this. Like people were like, Christina, this is probably going to be a show, right? I'm like, are you kidding me? Like I'm already touring. I was, I already set to tour this other show, which is perfectly good show. And people don't want to relive this pandemic and we're all living through it. So why do we want to watch this go on even longer when this is over? But what felt like was happening was I was, I knew I was witnessing things that no one else was seeing. Like I was literally running an army of aunties and instead of guns, we had sewing machines and instead of bullets, we had elastic and fabric and just this community that I met, like 
masked people showing up at my door who I'd never met before, who I'd never known weeks before, still have no idea what they do for a living, willing to sacrifice their lives, you know, in the sense that they're willing to leave their house. My own mother joined, right? And, and got her friends to help sew. Like, so it was really kind of incredible, but it was also this deep irony that here I am, a Chinese American, my grandparents came to this country, had a laundry business, you know, with the idea that maybe that I should never have to do this work ever again. And here I am, college-educated granddaughter. I am the, the dream of Gold Mountain. And now I am sewing masks for free out of bras and bed sheets because Gold Mountain couldn't figure out how to get, get everybody masks. And all my first volunteers were like Asian women. And I was like, oh my God, I am running a sweatshop. So that's where a lot of this humor comes from is just how absurd and strange our lives became in trying to create these masks and protect people in a time when also everyone was kind of mad at Asians. Right now, Koreatown and Chinatown are ghost towns. Posters for the live-action movie Mulan are being defaced. The commute from one Asian enclave to another is feeling like the Silk Road, if the Silk Road was brimming in hostility for all things Asian. So if I wear a mask over this mask I can't take off, this says, I'm that person threatening your every way of life right now. Take it out on me. There's an irony in that, isn't there? Um, and, and it just seems like, you know, you said it was a sweatshop, and I know that's the title of your show, a sweatshop overlord. But, you know, you also said there was this army of women, which actually was is more apropos, you know, because you were all banding together in an emergency. I will. I will. I, I don't want. Um, while we were mostly cisgender women, we do have we did have cis men and non-binary folks. So I don't want to make it seem like it was all it was a lot of women. For sure. And it usually is when it comes to sewing. But there, we, we did have other aunties as well who, who have gender expansive, you know, identities that aren't just women. So army of, of volunteers then. Well, we say aunties. There was a bit of a there was a controversy in the group because I, I was using the term sweatshop loosely and, and making sweatshop jokes. And someone was upset by that. And I, I specifically had felt like if I use the word volunteer that takes a lot of the finger pointing away from why we're in the situation in the first place. It just, it already makes our already expendable seeming bodies, our already harmless seeming bodies seem like, oh, they're just, they're volunteering. They've offered to do this. No, this is like a desperate situation. And this is ugly that it has come to this. And that both capitalism and the federal government and FEMA, like all these kind of systems that are supposed to be set up to help Americans in an emergency are not helping Right. I, we had to recreate entire supply chains. We, we, we actually got fabric from monks who gave us their robes. Right. <laughs> we were cutting the straps off our bras. Like this is more than just volunteering. And I know I don't want to dismiss the actual work that sweatshop workers do and the, and the conditions in which they're working in and the lack of choice they have compared to us. But I, I could not figure out another way to point to how totally wrong this was and and how unnecessary it seemed to be. That makes total sense. Yeah, because I, I love how you said that the volunteering means, oh, well, they were choosing to do this. But no, it was like a call in, in an emergency, emergency workers, you know, that, you know, to provide 
essential items to emergency workers. (laughs) One thing I say is we we're not all women, but we are all aunties, All aunties, which I know, which is very strange. I know. Um, No, I get it. it. Aunties is the is the new you guys. Right. Right, It's that new like catch all phrase describe us. But I felt I feel like I mean, the great accident, like I, I named us so quickly, I didn't realize our acronym was ass. Um, but, <laughs> oh, gosh, but, but, I just but there's that. <laughs> yeah, there's something kind of when you refer to people as auntie, even if you're mad at them, it's so much softer than than me going, OK, do I have any volunteers? We'll do this or that versus any aunties who will help me sew these masks like. It's a very different kind of ask that's much more familiar. And it's an endearment. It's endearing. It's tender. Um, So I I feel like if I I never will, knock on wood, ever run a nonprofit, people love being called auntie. And even when when people would make donations to help us pay for postage and stuff, I would just go, I would write back, thanks, auntie. And they they, more times than not, they'd go, I'm an auntie. Like (laughs) it was so royal to them. And I I was like, Yeah. So there was something about that that like I also, you know, we we just also had to move away from a lot of language that we're used to using, like words like can I when people be like, can I order a mask? And I'm like, no, you can request a mask. Right. Like just words framed in capitalism or words that frame our labor in a specific transactional way. And it sort of became a project in itself. For the most part, when people saw us sewing, they were like, oh, wow, this needs to get sewn they would maybe tune into how much work and time that was. But every so often and more times than I'd like to remember, people would ask us for stuff as if we were just Amazon. They'd be like, can I order this, that, and this and pick this and that? And I'm like, we're in a pandemic right now. I'm not going to run and break into some fabric store so that you can have your personalized Voltron mask, right? Like, I don't like I don't have time for this shit right now. So this, you know, began to get me in a sore spot because it was like, I don't think that people get that what we are doing is actually difficult. And I'm wondering if people are not realizing that because, you know, we are mostly women and women of color, that our labor and our time was valuable before this as well and needs to be respected. Like just because you're used to seeing footage of Asian people in sweatshops sewing does not mean like you can make those same kind of demands. You shouldn't be making those demands of that work there or us now, right? And so, so a lot of this show is about me kind of reteaching people who may not, who may have never said anything to me before in my life, but teaching them like how I would have liked for people to respect our work and to really understand how much all of us were sort of sacrificing in doing this. Because there'd be people, it was like, I don't think that they understand that me making them this mask while they panic at home is actually putting me more at risk I'm not expendable either. Well, it's, it sounds like it's a matter of respect as well. It's a huge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to talk more about your show specifically, but also uh, this book, The Auntie Sewing Squad Guide to Mask Making, Radical Care and Racial Justice. I mean, wow, what a great title. It, so so all the aunties wrote essays or pieces. Yeah, it's, it's an anthology. It's out from UC Press, and the youngest contributor to it is eight years old. Aww. You know, <laughs> um, but we also have a, we had a lot of academics in our group who became the co-editors of the book and contributors, and were able to really kind of reflect on this work in the context of transnational labor, in the context of being a refugee to this country, and the survival skills that you learn when you're here, and in the context of 
women's labor and history, right? And and so it's a it's a it's so incredible that on top of all this craziness, we were also pumping out this book to document this time. And I'm so glad we did. And to pat myself on the back, I'm glad that I wrote down what was happening in the show that I didn't realize was going to be such a big deal. Because a lot of these details I would have easily forgotten. So it must have helped you when you started thinking about putting this solo show together, too, to have that background. Yeah. And that was sort of a, I, I kind of had this feeling like I wasn't sure if we were all going to survive this. I really had, you know, seen the, you know, those movies where everyone's like running through a grocery store with no employees and just throwing food into a basket. But then they get sick from touching the food that other people who, who were sick touched, you know, like those those kind of moments. And so I just started to work on it a month in. Tieta Productions, which is a nomadic theater company of color, artistic director Leilani Chan invited, she was one of our aunties. She invited. Oh, no, I know Leilani. Yeah. Yes. So she invited me to um, do some work virtually. And I was like, I have no time to make Zoom theater right now. All I'm thinking about is how to get elastic and fabric and mask these communities. And she's like, no, you can do this. And I was like, well, it's going to end up being a show about everything I'm seeing right now. And that was only 40 days. No, I think it was like a month into the pandemic, exactly one month into Auntie Sewing Squad. And basically, I would get invites to perform on Zoom for different places, and I would just add new scenes up until the moment that we were at. So there was no real arc. I mean, it was just sort of like, this is happening, this is happening, and all through the lens of a sweatshop overlord running a mask sewing group, just sort of the crazy requests we were getting. We had a request forwarded to us from Walter Reed Hospital after Trump caught COVID. Like, just things that you're like, how are you such a mess that you need my free help when I just saw you, like, I just saw eight doctors walk out for a press conference, you know, <laughs> all like coddling and taking care of this one patient, you know, like, I don't understand this, right? So these are all these kind of moments that we're trying to capture and just sort of this incredible, generous community. I, I've never had friendships like this before, where I've just felt so... I just I, I, I have I feel like I have a family all over the country that I haven't really met before. And we're connected by this strange time in history and this act of sewing for the love of people we'll, we'll never know. Well, so you're still in touch with many of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some of them come to my shows and that's where I meet them for the first time. So I premiered this off Broadway in New York and a bunch of aunties came through and I met many for the first time there. I just finished a run at La Jolla Playhouse where I got to meet a lot of aunties for the very first time. And now we're headed to Portland and we're going to see some of the Pacific Northwest aunties come through. You know, the thing is, this is such a great story, period. You lived it and you 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 were not just lived it, but, you know, it all sort of came together with you right in the center of this. I can't believe I lived it and I can't believe... <laughs> I'm talking about it now. It's so weird. It, it, in a very shitty time, it was a perfect storm, at least in terms of, of this becoming a production. Because honestly, I, I, I often would reflect like, God, how would have I handled the pandemic if I was 24, not 44, right? And I, I was a very different person then. This was that one moment in a crisis where I was like, what if we don't panic? I mean, I was panicking, but what if we don't like freak out, hoard, scream, you know, pine about the world. What if I actually try to help other people? And I, I, I'm like now, like that was the right thing to do. The whole time I went, I didn't go into this like going, you know what? This is this is sort of the long game for a Pulitzer finalist thing, you know, for in my career. That's not how I went into this, which is why this is always so surprising. Um, 
you know, that it like I've won all these solo performance awards and then I'm like, what is happening? Well, it's not a bad thing <laughs> to be on Broadway. It's not a bad thing at all. I'm just. And and be nominated for a Pulitzer, you know, during one of the, the hardest times in our lifetimes, you know, that we just went through because it's unprecedented. It certainly makes a, a terrible time. It's a little bit bittersweet, right? Because I, I, I wish we were never in that position. And if you could give me all the choices in the world, I'd say, you know what? I wish we just didn't have a pandemic. Like, even if it means I would have never made a show about this. I, you know, I was more than happy to do other kinds of work. It was a terrible time. It was horrible. And, yeah. and, and, and it still is. I mean, we're, we're people are still we're getting not, sick. It's not over completely. It's not over. No. But, you know, it, you know, it, it just says journalists chronicle time. So do artists. And yeah. you chronicle that time. And it, it's worthy to remember it because it wasn't, you know, we're still going through it. Right. And, uh, you know, that's what artists do as well as journalists. And we all have to mm -hmm. remember these things. We can't just have these short-term memory and go, oh, well, that's over with. And let's go back to yeah. you know, some other kind of normal, you know? I think that's how we got, we keep getting in these messes exactly. as, as a planet as we, as like, hmm, climate change. Oh, God. Whatever. Not a big deal. You know, it's like not happening <laughs> right now. You what's know? wrong with us, you know? No. And uh, yeah. And I, I think so much of this show was me saying, here's a moment to write a, his, a, a specific history into existence that here's here's a Chinese American woman that's me and and a other a bunch of other Asian American who who in a moment where everyone was angry at us we weren't apolitical we weren't sitting on our hands and freaking out we weren't being greedy we actually stepped up to support the world at large right and and we did so with a lot of body humor and a lot of gallows humor <laughs> but but also to sort of highlight like. Wow, there were so many incredible organizers that we worked with in different communities, folks um, on the Lakota Reservation, folks the Navajo Nation Reservation, and they've been doing this work before, during, and after the pandemic to support people, right? Like, we just showed up for 504 days of this, but I really feel like there's a lot of parts of this country we don't see, especially if you live in a big city, and a lot of the realities of settler colonialism and uh, federal neglect that we that were literally like felt like it was screaming in our face to help during this terrible time in history. Are you happy with this version of the show now? Are you still working on it? I'm very happy. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, I premiered it in 2021 in the fall and and just came back from La Jolla where I did make a few changes to acknowledge like I caught COVID in January, oh, right? No. And oh. I mean, I'm fine yeah, yeah. because I'm vaccinated, right? But ha but I had had I not been vaccinated, it could have been a very different story. But yeah, yeah, to just sort of just sort of reflect on this moment where we actually did feel quite powerful because we were doing something that was very tangible. We were sending literal protection to communities, and now that we've quote unquote reopened, mass shootings are back. There's a war in Ukraine, right? Like there are just things that we now again feel like. We felt a hope helpless during the pandemic, and now we're like we're looking at our sewing machines, going, "Huh, <laughs> how does this sewing machine fix you know all the stuff that was that was really pronounced before the health pandemic?" Well, you certainly have a group of aunties now that could respond very quickly if needed. 
You do. You have that. We do. We are. We are a network. We're an incredible community. Um, there are a couple of aunties who are working with different projects to help welcome Afghan refugees in Los Angeles and and basically help them get set up, help them get driver's license, like you know, just basically be a sort of a home base for them as they acclimate to being here. And I'm so proud of them. And I'm, I'm so proud that Auntie Sewing Squad could be a structure of support. There was like a recently arrived mother of this family needed a ride to the, not hospital, but like to the doctor. And none of the aunties who were sort of supporting her were available, but they were able to ask the auntie network. And Auntie Sunny stepped up and drove her. You know, like how incredible to have this community of generous aunties. Well, that's incredible to hear. Yeah, totally. Uh, So uh, Christina Wong, Sweatshop Overlord, is also going to have a BIPOC affinity night for the show. And that's Friday, December 9th at 6.30 p.m. And it's sliding scale. Mm. And do you generally talk to people after your shows? Yeah, Yeah, I thought so. I thought so. I I need to collect my compliments. I work hard. I need you to compliment me. I need compliments. (laughs) <laughs> that's more than the applause I think well, I, I just love that there's a BIPOC night and <laughs> yeah, it's for it BIPOC too. people you know and and is that a rare thing f- to see I mean I think these affinity nights are so crucial for BIPOC artists because it's nice to see you know your communities reflect you you know yeah. in the audience oh no I yeah I just came from La Jolla which is very and even the staff knows this like it's very monolithically older and white and I was like oh, we're hard, <laughs> yeah, that's hard. Um, but no I mean the the institution of theater in general which you know has many moving parts it's not like one waves and makes it go away but but I think those of us who work in theater realize that the audience that is currently sustaining most subscription theater will not even be here in 20 years and will take their money with them. And and this, we need to figure out how to make theater that reflects what this country looks like, that reflects the interests. And and honestly, I mean, my whole take on this all is that we are in the rapture. We are in a long ass rapture. And we've- I hate those I, rapture movies. It always made me feel so but bad. But listen- You've we, been left behind. I spent, <laughs> I spent 504 days running a shadow FEMA that in ways was more effective than nonprofits, than government age. We got stuff directly yeah. to people. Um, that's not my wish to do this, but I ran it sort of like a theater company. Like, not that I run theater companies, but like I produced it. It was like, but building sort of a certain morale in these aunties to give them a sense of identity and purpose in this time. Like, this is why theaters, you know, are able to have actors work for no money. <laughs> you know, they have a sense of purpose and whatever and being part of a show. And this is exactly how I ran it. So I do feel like theater is maybe the last bastion for free speech and for for really important social change and can model the shifts that we hope will ripple down to mainstream and commercial culture, right? So those folks who will never step in a theater and only watch Netflix. like, And I, I do feel like, as I see a lot of my playwright friends work, writing for television and, and these conversations that used to just happen in college classrooms about race sort of circle out into bigger spaces. I, I feel like maybe theater helped make that happen. So yeah, so so it is really, I'm excited for this BIPOC affinity night. I, I hope we get to a place where we don't have to have them anymore because we just look in the audience. We're like, oh, we're all here, you know? <laughs> but yeah, it's something fairly new that I've been introduced to. I live in Los Angeles. So I 
was first understanding what they were when I was doing my show in New York and saw that um, Anna Devere Smith's Twilight had a had a BIPOC affinity night. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Um, I didn't know you'd need to do it in New York, but that's because... I don't want to take credit for it in Portland, but I'm oh. going to. Um, that was something that Theater Diaspora, we started oh, fantastic. Uh, here in Portland, yeah. where we just said it's, you know... It's POC night. Everybody come yeah. who's POC and you get, you know, discounted tickets or even free if you can't afford it. Yeah. We just wanted to make sure there was an audience that reflected yeah. us, you know? Yeah. You and know. then maybe that's what it takes because it does. It's, I, you know, I guess in L.A., there's so much theater and I've also figured out how to get free tickets for anything because I'm Christina Wong. Right. But you shouldn't but, have to. <laughs> you, know. you know, but like... <laughs> But yeah, it's pretty prohibitive to see theater. And, and if you come from a community that has never felt welcome to code to the theater and certainly not spending fifty nine seventy five a hundred plus dollars on a ticket, you know, like what are the what are the ways to welcome these audiences back in? And that's one way. And it also builds an appetite yeah. for theater. Yeah. That's the thing, you know, with new audiences. Mm. Well, it's been so great talking with you, Christina. Yes, we I can't wait to talking yes. forever Good and luck. ever. <laughs> Christina Wong, kudos to you for all of your work. It's been such a, you know, it's always enlightening to talk with you and break legs on your opening here in Portland. I cannot wait to hang out in Portland. I'm looking forward to it too. Bring in the rain. Uh, yeah. Christina Wong, Sweatshop Overlord. That opens with previews on November 5th and performances start November 11th, runs through December 18th. And all shows are in the Ellen Vi studio at the Armory at Portland Center Stage. It's a co-production with Boom Arts and you can get more info at pcs.org or boomarts.org. You can also find those links or hear this show again with Christina Wong on stageandstudio.org or orartswatch.org. That's it for Stage and Studio. Till the next conversation, I'm Dee Malo Roberts. Bring in the rain. Thank you.